You are this country's first openly gay prime minister. How big a deal is this for you personally? Brexit process. U.S. investment bank Lehman Brothers collapsed. I said this was a once in a generation a vote. financial crisis. But I believe we have voted today for the next generation. Don't be rude. Ireland has spoken with a clear, strong voice. I think I should stop now and start again because I don't think you this is a good news. start of the debate. Welcome to the Dublin Law and Politics Review podcast, in which we discuss legal political issues and get the latest updates from research. If you would like to get notified of our activities, updates and publications, please follow us on social media via at DublinLPR or visit our website www.dublinlpr.ie. My name is Annelieke Mooy and with me today is Tanya Nie-Virgila, with whom I'll be discussing her project on mapping the intersex experience in Ireland. Welcome, Tanya. Hi, thank you so much for having me on. So could you tell me, what is intersex? Sure. (laughs) That's a loaded question from the get-go. So intersex is an umbrella term used to describe a variety of situations where a person's physical sex characteristics do not align in the way that we would traditionally think of for male or female bodies. So you can have a confusion of male sex characteristics and female sex characteristics all in the one body. And it's a naturally occurring human variation. There's lots of different medical diagnostic labels that you can give. There's over 30 of them. But there are also people whose bodies are very clearly intersexed, but there has not yet been a diagnostic label invented to cover their particular variety. So intersex is about, the UN recognised that about 1.7% of the population are intersex. So it's kind of roughly the same as the proportion of redheaded people that you'll find in Western society. So if you've met a redhead person, whether you knew you had or not, you've probably also (laughs) met an intersex person, even though you might not necessarily know that you have. Okay, that's very interesting. So is that similar to transgender or is it very different? No, it's very different. Uh, So intersex is a physical, biological thing. Um, Transgender is where you have um, a discontinuity between a person's physical sex. So the physical sex is absolutely unambiguously of a clear sex or gender and their gender identity, um, which can be different to that. So a trans person may have a female body, but may have an internal sense of themselves as a man, as opposed to a woman. Whereas an intersex person may have a body that combines those kinds of traits. I suppose as a lawyer, a very simple way to explain it is that the legal test for gender was set down in a case in the 1970s in England. And you must have the congruence of your chromosomes, gonads and genitals at the moment of your birth. So any person who has that congruence um, is you know, the legal sex is clear. So if you have XX chromosomes, you have internal ovaries and you've all female genitalia and you were like that at the moment of your birth, then you are clearly legally a woman. Mm -hmm. You have that same congruence, but you feel yourself to be a man and not a woman. You can have your gender recognized um, and their legislation will allow that common law set to be that test to be set aside. But an intersex person is a person who never was congruent. So they could have, for example, congenital um, adrenal hyperplasia is a particular condition and they would 
be babies who are super sensitive to testosterone. So when they were in the womb, the little bit of testosterone that would flow through the womb, they, they were super sensitive to it. So their chromosomes are XX, which would normally indicate female. Their gonads are ovaries, but because they're sensitive to the testosterone, their genitals may have developed along more apparently male lines. Okay, and what are you adding to that? What is your research trying to discover? So there's an awful lot of work out there about intersex people and their experience of the world. Um, and since the 20th century, medicine has intervened with sort of hormone treatments and also surgical treatments to re-sculpt intersex bodies along more traditional gender lines. So I suppose it's worth saying that in the vast majority of cases, it's not dangerous to be intersex. It doesn't impair your health. It's not a life endangering thing to have. It's just different. But um, in the 20th century, doctors started to intervene to surgically re-alter intersex bodies to appear more female or more male. Um, so they would do penis enhancement procedures or whatever they needed to do. And this was called gender assignment surgery or gender normalization surgery. There was no real need to do it very early, except for this psychological theory that the gender identity gate settles between 18 months and two years. And so you would want to nurture the child into identifying with the gender that had been assigned to them. Um, and so you wanted to get in and do the intervention quickly. But the difficulty is that oftentimes, obviously not always, but oftentimes those interventions um, are harmful for the person upon whom they are performed. Um, so there can be lots of consequences. Harmful how? Harmful physically or harmful psychologically? Both. So the physical consequences can be, um, are very analogous to female genital mutilation. It's why the UN calls it intersex genital mutilation. So you can have buildup of scar tissue, chronic pain, necrosis, which is rotting of the flesh. Um, you can have a lack of sexual sensation, um, disfiguration of the genital appearance. Um, you could then there are psychological impacts. So caused by the fact that often you know, it used to be the case that intersex kids were never told this happened to them or they were told they were cancer survivors instead. And so when the truth of that comes out, that can fracture relationships because often these are done in teaching hospitals. Intersex kids are examined by loads and loads of different doctors and they lose the autonomy to say no when someone wants to investigate their genital areas. And so they feel that they are medical freaks or objects of medical curiosity and that can cause disassociation as well and so there's all that hurt and trauma that comes from, from that experience and so it, it is to answer your question both a psychological and and a physical thing not for everybody but it, there's a lot of people who who report those kinds of negative outcomes and so what we're trying to do in our project is to, we've no research on what's happening in Ireland. We don't know. What we do know is that the UN has twice given out to the Irish state and um, the UN Committee on the Rights of the Child in our last review sanctioned Ireland for not actively protecting intersex children from non-consensual surgeries. And when they say non-consensual, obviously a parent has consented somewhere. What they mean is that when the 
because it's a cosmetic procedure, when it's done without the consent of the person upon whom it is performed, that is considered non-consensual. There's no emergency here, so there's no reason you couldn't wait until the person is able to make a decision for themselves. And the Irish state wasn't able to answer that. And CEDAW likewise also sanctioned us for the same reason. Now, considering what you said earlier about medical belief that it is better to perform such operations on the child whilst it's young, should not that medical idea and the medical necessity contradict the need for consent? No, that theory is, is very questioned and it's very hotly contested um, because the basis, the science underpinning it, um, it, it, it was less accurate than understood. So the, one of the, the linchpins um, underpinning this approach was a case that had nothing to do with an intersex person, actually. A set of identical twin boys were born in America in 1965 um, and because they had a difficulty urinating, it was recommended that they be circumcised and an electrocatheter was used and there was a power surge. And so one of the boys had his penis ablated, which means it's burnt off. And his family didn't know what to do. Obviously the second, the twin was not then operated on and the family didn't know what to do. And were watching a TV documentary, sort of the equivalent to the Late Late Show. And they saw this doctor on it called John Money, who was a psychologist based in Johns Hopkins Hospital in Baltimore, Maryland. And he was there with one of the first people who had undergone trans surgery. And the mum and dad were thinking, well, he can think about these things in different ways. Maybe he can help. And so they went, you know, contacted him and he was delighted to meet them because he had, he always had had this theory about nature and nurture. And here you had a test and an identical clone. So you could see whether it was going to work or not. And so they did a sex change operation on John and sent, baby John and sent him home as Joan. And it was reported in 1972 that this had been done and that it was enormously successful and that Joan always wore skirts and was a real girly girl. She was a bit of a tomboy, but you know, she was very much a girl and her brother was very much a boy. And sort of without normally in science, before something takes off, you counter test to disprove the thesis and you sort of hope to lose, to fail, because then the thing is working right and it's the right way of doing something. And none of that counter testing was done because of these were two genetically identical clones because they were identical twin boys originally and um, it was reported as a success and so the, the idea of these kinds of interventions became more and more normal on intersex children and it was only in the late 1990s that it was John the baby was in John Joan was announced that it, it was announced they were lost to research at some point in time so nobody really knew what the longitudinal outcome was and in the in the 1990s more research was done Joan was found and Joan was now living as David. So it turns out that later, earlier in their teenage years, that there have been, that she had ne never accepted this female gender role really, it had been a huge tomboy, only wore skirts because her parents had never finished education and the doctor told the mom, you must dress her as a little girl. And so even though they were in the middle of a freezing cold Canadian winter, she would still wear bobby socks and a skirt because that's what girls wear when all the other girls were in ski suits, you know. Um, so this kind of thing was going on and it, they discovered that, you know, in her teenage years, she had been fighting off um, vaginal surgery for years and years and eventually she exploded in her endocrinologist's office and, you know, the endocrinologist said to her, but you, you don't want to be a real girl and she no, 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 and went 
when her dad picked her up after the, the appointment, they went off and she explained to the dad and the dad talked to him and told him everything that had happened. And from that moment, he reclaimed his identity, gender identity as a male. But then he had to undergo double mastectomy because they had given him hormones to try and help his body to develop along female lines. And so he had grown breasts and he had to have them removed and so on and so forth. So, you know, it's not, like I say, the science wasn't great underpinning it. And it was around the same time in the early 1990s that adult intersex people who had been treated under this paradigm started to come out and to share their stories. And everyone was told that they were the only one in the world. And so they all felt very alone and ashamed and stigmatized and so tried to hide this. And they came together as a group and started to petition for their for their rights and for rights to bodily integrity and to try and ensure that this wouldn't happen to any other children um so yeah so like I said, we don't know what happens in ireland and so what we're doing with the project is every time we try to lobby for change or to get a proper response to the un's questions about what do we do the government says sure we don't know we don't have that many of them and so the pur purpose of this project it's very much a foundational baseline project. We're ju we just want to know what happens to intersex people who are born in Ireland and how they live their lives. So what is current government policy towards intersex people? There is no current government policy. So that's the point. There is no policy. Uh, there's no law protecting. I mean, there is law, of course, there's human rights law. We all have the right to bodily integrity. Children have the right to for their, be you know, their best interests to be considered, for them to have a voice in all decisions that fundamentally affect them in line with their age and maturity and all the other rights that any other child has. And so all intersex people, whether they are children or adults, enjoy the same human rights as everybody else. But of course, they're not protected if these things are happening when they, before they can contribute to the conversation. Would it be a solution to prohibit these type of surgeries or at least require a minimum age before they can be executed? We could try. Um, that's certainly a legislative intervention that would be welcomed by some in the community. Um, I think it would have to happen by legislation because I think what the FOI case shows us is that when you get these kind of questions and here you are talking about interfering in the parent-child dynamic and we know from Irish case law that notwithstanding Article 42.842a of our constitution that we that's still not always a successful battle for kids right so often it's it's I mean children do we do recognize that they have their own rights separate from the family rights but it's often inferred that their best interest is to be considered as part of the family and to go along with the family and particularly where the parents are married and um, so we yeah we could I think you couldn't guarantee that the courts would stand up for kids in this context and so therefore um a legislative intervention would be required They've done this in Malta, by the way, their um, Gender Identity, Sexual Orientation and uh, Sex Characteristics Act from 2015, which we did use as a model for our Gender Recognition Act in some parts, um, does very specifically prohibit medically unnecessary interventions on the body of an intersex child without their express consent. Um, and again, the time when that's happened is not def arbitrarily defined, but it's in line with the child's you know, age and maturity. Now, would it be harmful to raise these children as neutral, so raise them without a gender identity, at least till a certain age? Well, I wouldn't raise anybody as gender neutral because our society is not able to cope with that. So we see that when people are people have non-binary identities and they 
you know, and also not, it's important to say that while, I mean, we're talking a lot about intersex at the moment because it's Pride and Pride Month and people are asking me to talk about it, but not all intersex people feel that they fit within the rainbow. So there are intersex people who feel that they are women and identify as being women, but they have a medical condition, which means their body is intersex. Um, but they are cisgendered straight women, and that's how they consider for them how they consider themselves. So I don't think it's, I, I think we have to think, acknowledge that while some intersex people are within the LGBT umbrella, some are not. Um, and so raising in a gender neutral way, when that's not normal in society, you're, you're gonna cause hassle there. Like one of the big impulses for doing these kinds of treatments, the old, thankfully now set aside, um, declaration from the American um, Academy of Pediatric Surgeons was that, the birth of an intersex child is a social emergency. So the, when you're doing the, the surgeries, what you're doing is treating a social emergency because you're afraid someone's going to be bullied. Raising someone outside the boy-girl spectrum is going to recreate that social emergency. Well, it can't be easy being intersex, of course. And when you talk about this kind of social emergency that's being created, what kind of issues do they face? What kind of burden does society place upon these people? In many ways, none, because while one in 2000 children are born with a visible intersex condition, so ambiguous genitalia, lots are not. One in 50 are intersex, but we don't notice it. So sometimes it doesn't become obvious that someone is intersex until maybe they have a puberty that doesn't go the way we might expect or some other thing um, leads to scans happening. So maybe you have pentazitis and you're open and someone sees something when you're on the operating table that they wouldn't expect. So, or you're having difficulty um, conceiving children and you go for help for fertility treatment and it's uncovered there or for any number of a plethora of other reasons, you're having medical investigations for something else and it turns out that you're intersexed. And you can even get it, make it the whole way to the autopsy table before anybody knows that you're intersex. So if, no, like if the people don't know, they don't know. And so there are no issues. You, you, know, you experience no difference to anybody else. Where it becomes a challenge for people is where interventions are done. And then inevitably, if they're, the younger they're done, the more interventions that are needed um, because scar tissue doesn't grow at the same rate. And because everybody is different, <laughs> by which I mean every body is different, um, it's not like whipping out an appendix. So none of these interventions are routine procedures. So it's always a bit of an experiment every time as to how the body will react to this intervention and whether we need to do this or that or change things. So there can be many... and as anybody who has ever transitioned will know, gender, a sex change operation is the word we use. It's a misnomer. There are many interventions that happen along that process. And so if you start interventions on intersex people, then there's a need to go back. And so it can be hard to stay in school if you're gonna be missing long periods of time. Intersex people, uh, there's a fantastic study that was done in Australia in 2015 that we are trying to recreate in the Irish context um, in terms of our survey. And it's about just charting people's lives. And what the Australian study showed was that intersex people both have a higher rate of dropout of school in comparison to the normal population and also are more overeducated so that when people come back to school they continue on up to doctoral level um, 
at rates that's you know uncommonly high in comparison to the rest of the world and um, they can also have issues maintaining a job because if you're going to be in and out of hospital, it can be hard to, to keep down a job, which then has consequences in terms of housing, access to proper health care, and being able to afford proper health care, and so on and so forth. So it's difficult material, and it's difficult to generate policy in this area. Is there any significant data or research already whether the Maltese policy, where they prohibited surgery, at least till a certain age, was actually effective and was experienced as good by these intersex people? No, we can't. That's only been, um, the, the, the Maltese legislation has only been enforced since 2015, so there have been no longitudinal studies, obviously. Actually, longitudinal studies on intersex life in general is a problem. There are none. Um, so, but there's there's also none in the context of Malta. Um, that said, I'm very lucky to be part of a consortium um, who we, we, it's called the INEA project, Intersex New um, in, Interdisciplinary Approaches, and we won some funding from the EU to fund 10 PhD students in six institutions around the EU doing PhDs on intersex issues. And one of those, uh, two of them actually would be based with us in DCU, but one of the projects is a comparative analysis of the legal situation in Ireland and in Malta. So we hope as part of that, to be looking at the lived experience of Maltese intersex people and to see what the situation is on the ground there. So with this lack of longitude studies, it almost sounds as if this is a newly discovered issue. Was this never a problem before? Oh, it's always been an issue. Um, so if you look back in medical literature, um, go back as far as Hippocrates, after whom, whom the Hippocratic ghost is named, he talks about intersex people in his work. Galen, in his Atlas of Human Anatomy, talks about intersex people. Aristotle, Plato talk about them in their work. Fast forward through, from a legal perspective, in the 1200s, Henry de Bracton, who wrote the first book on common law in England, talks about intersex people very famously. Lord Coke, who uh, was the Lord Chief Justice of England, during the reign of King James I in the early 1600s published a book where he tried to, well actually it's three books, where he tried to codify common law in England called On the Laws of, and Institutes of England. It's kind of the totemic place where you go for those really early precedents. And in there he was talking about succession law and he said that anyone can inherit as either a male, female or a hermaphrodite and a hermaphrodite, which is really old fashioned, totally on PC word for intersex, can inherit as either a male or female according to the sex which doth prevail. In other words, law didn't care whether you were male or female in general. They only, law only cared about what you were at the moment when it was legally significant. And that all changed with the introduction of the Registration of Births Act in the 1860s because then there was an, an obligation within a number of days of birth to declare to the state whether this baby, what the sex of the baby was actually is what it said in the schedule of the act. Everyone assumed that to mean male or female and a confluence of various different things and social changes and the sort of suppression of alternatives um, identities and um, sexualities and stuff meant intersex also got buried and the knowledge of it got buried, um, which is why things changed in the last sort of 200 years. So it changed about 200 years ago with the introduction of administration of the sex at birth. Which yeah, well, very, like, very quietly. Do you know, there was a lot of things happened at the same time. The introduction of administration was one, the publication of Darwin's on the origin of the species, prioritizing the heterosexual male and female as the forms of humanity that could ensure this continuation of the species. Um, the sort of suppression of homosexuality and gayness in um, 
the, the criminal law, all those kind of things together makes a kind of a, a cesspool <laughs> or anything that's not the beautiful, um, clearly bodily defined heterosexual person rises to the top and everything else got shoved down, you know. Now, I have one more question, a bit more on the methodological perspective, because you rightly said nobody and nobody is the same. Mm -hmm. That means that nobody or people won't fit into one category or into various different labels. How do you do that methodologically speaking? That must be a methodological nightmare. Um, yeah, true. So we, what we're doing methodologically, we're charting lived experience. So our methodologies we're doing, um, and it's an interdisciplinary project. So I'm working with um, Professor Anthony Staines and Dr. Mel Duffy over in the School of Nursing. Um, like, is it, what is it? Oh, sugar, they're going to kill me because they changed the name last year. I can't remember the new name. It's nursing psychotherapy and community health um, and we have a postdoc on the project as well who's with us in law and government dr maria feeney so there's four of us working on it um, and what we're doing is we're doing a literature review of um what the law says and what the legal standards are internationally regionally and domestically and uh, we're doing the same a literature review on what sociological research says the what, what's best international practice the same with medical research to identify best international practice so that's the first part of the work and then the second part of the work is we're doing two parts to gather the data on lived experience. So we've got this long survey and it is a very long survey and we're so grateful to everyone who's taken the time to fill it in. It's available at dcu.ie forward slash intersex. That's our website. You can find the link to the survey there, get my plug in. Um, and so people are telling us, so a lot of that, some of those questions is that kind of raw quantitative information, you know, lists of conditions, are you this one or are you other various kinds of questions like that but also space for people to give us more qualitative data but we're also doing a series of interviews with intersex people so with three groups of people with intersex people with their families and with healthcare professionals who have experienced treating intersex people and we're using a methodology called hermeneutic phenomenology so it's totally unstructured interviews. So it's whatever the person wants to share with you about their lives. And there's only one question. And the question is, tell me about your experience of intersex. And then it goes where they goes. And so those are really deeply analyzed, qualitative information. And it's the combination of this sort of like stats contextualized by the lived experience that will enable us to identify what the gaps are in terms of where the literature tells us we should be and where we actually are in terms of practice and the hope is that once we map the lived experience onto the best international practice in the three different disciplines we'll be able to identify a series of gaps in order to propose legislative policy and guideline reform and to make things better for the lived to make the lives of intersex people better you know well thank you so much for talking to me it sounds like a really interesting project and definitely worthwhile is there something else you'd like to tell us about your project well just to if your listeners if every one of your listeners would tell two people about this this would be amazing because it would both spread awareness about intersex which is so very fundamentally needed but also you never know who will hear what you say um, and so there might be someone who 
maybe would like to do the survey or might like to get in touch for an interview to tell us about their lives and we would just so dearly love to hear about them and we're just defining Irishness um, in a very broad way so if you could play for the soccer team we'll talk to you <laughs> so if you're an, an intersex person who was born in Ireland who lives somewhere else in the world who'd like to talk to us we would love to talk to you or if you're a person who is not Irish, but who is intersex and has lived in Ireland for some time, we would also like to talk to you. You don't have to be here now, by the way, but if you've been here for like, a, you know, a decent amount of time and you've had some experience of being intersex in Ireland, we would love to talk to you. All right. Well, I hope more people will understand intersex from now on and will be able to talk to you and at least be aware of the issues that arise. Thank, thank you, you so, so much for talking to me. And thank you all for listening to the Dublin Law and Politics Review podcast on intersex lived experience in Ireland. If you enjoyed this podcast, don't forget to subscribe or follow us on social media via at Dublin LPR. Comments, questions and suggestions are very welcome via contact at DublinLPR.ie. My name is Annelie Moy and I wish you a very pleasant day. Thank you again, Tanya. Oh, no, not at all. Thank you so much. Hopefully someone will hear it and we'll fill in a survey or get in touch for an interview. Thank you so, so much.